My name is Keith Beavers, and I just got into NWSL. Found out there's a Gotham team for Jersey and New York. Let's do this! What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 24 of Vine Pair's Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. And how you doing? Oh, it's by the way, it's season two. The faults in our wines. How do we recognize? What are they? Should we care? We just need the knowledge. Let's talk about wine faults right now. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini in Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at BarrelRoom.com. Cheers and all the best. So last episode, I got all poetic in the beginning <laughs> about what you're anticipating, you know, in a glass. And we talked about vulnerability, you know, how wine and grape juice has this vulnerability. And we talked about how to protect that vulnerability. And... I just, just so you know, guys, I love this stuff. This is, this is amazing because wine, beca- grape juice becoming wine is such an amazing, complicated, chemical, enzymatic reaction party. <laughs> and in, in, the, in the best circumstances, all that nature and all that enzymatic stuff happens with a human kind of coaxing it into existence and you have something beautiful. It's just... Wine is so fascinating that way, but it's also very vulnerable. And there are all these things that winemakers have to combat to make sure that the wine is sound. And when things happen to wine that compromise the typicity of a wine, I guess you could say, meaning like where it's grown, how it's made, the, the maybe in, in Europe, the rules that are in place to make it consistent. When things, these things happen to compromise that, those are known as wine faults. And I know the term wine fault is kind of intense because things that happen in wine that are kind of like nature's oopsies <laughs> that you miss as a winemaker or whatever can become something like the idea of noble rot. Botrytis cinera, infecting a grape. People make very famous wine from like in the, in the wines of Sauternes in Bordeaux out of that. Like there was like, oh gosh, this is infected. Oh gosh, it makes great wine. In Vino Verde, the wine region in northern Portugal, Vino Verde wine was often just very young wine. And before technology, the wines still had a little bit of yeast in them when they were bottled. So there was a little bit of fizziness in the wines. And now these days, Often, Vino Verdes are injected with CO2 to sort of emulate that natural fizziness that happened back in the day. And I guess the most famous oopsie of nature and humans interacting with this stuff would be sparkling wine. 
Like, oh my gosh, our bottles are exploding, but oh my gosh, this tastes good, you know? But there are some things that nature throws at these winemakers that just cannot be or often have not been associated with being beneficial to the resulting wine. And that's where the whole wine fault thing comes into play. If you're gonna if you're buying a bottle of Pinot Noir, I mean, I no matter where it's from, you have an idea of what that Pinot Noir is going to taste like and what it's going to smell like. And depending on where it's grown and how it's made, it's going to have little nuances here and there, but it's a Pinot Noir. And if something is considered a wine fault, it subtracts enough organic stuff so that when you smell that Pinot Noir, it doesn't smell like a Pinot Noir. It'll smell like something else. Vinegar, a mouse, a musty basement, or wet dog hair. There's Pinot Noir somewhere in there, but these things take over, overwhelm the wine, and don't allow your brain to enjoy the Pinot Noir stuff. And that's just for, you know, smelling and enjoying aromas and flavors of wine. But there's also stuff you can see. And that's not as, that's not as intense as the stuff you can smell. That can really mess with the wine and your brain and your enjoyment of a wine. I'm going to go over a couple things you can see, but I'm really going to concentrate on things you can smell. There's, a, there's three things that happen to wine that will tell you something's wrong when you're smelling a wine. When you're looking at a wine, a couple things can look weird, but they're not necessarily that weird. Um, one thing is that sometimes wines, if they're not cold stabilized, there are, there are things in the wine called tartrates. And those tartrates are soluble, meaning that sometimes they can extract themselves from the liquid of the wine. And sometimes as a wine ages, a wine is always aging, a wine is always reacting with itself, it's always reducing itself inside that bottle. Sometimes these tartrates can become crystallized. And you'll see at the bottom of a bottle, crystals. And in white wine, they look like shards of glass or crystal. And in red wines, they look like just extremely brownish dyed red rocks. (laughs) But they're not. They're just salts, and they're not harmful at all. They're just in the wine. And all you have to do is take them out. And that's something decanting can do for you. This doesn't really happen much anymore, but sometimes a bottle can become cloudy. Um, That's just proteins that are coming out of the liquid as well. They eventually stabilize and it'll calm itself down. If you've ever seen the movie Bottle Shock with Alan Rickman, the late and great Alec Rickman, that's kind of part of that, that movie there. And subtle bubbles in a young white wine from Vino Verde in northern Portugal is very cool. But sometimes you can get bubbles in an old red wine, which is not so cool, which basically means that there was, some, there was a messy bottling process and there was some residual yeast in the bottle and over time it slowly but surely ate that sugar and fermented a little bit in the bottle and that can and that will you know it it doesn't increase the alcohol so much but it creates the carbon dioxide a little bit of bubbles and in addition to that it takes away a little bit from the fruit character of the wine but it's in what we smell that is really going to affect you as a wine lover looking forward to something And not getting it because nature did a thing. And there are three big things that nature does to wine to try to ruin it. There's cork taint, 
oxidation and spoilage yeast and bacteria. We're going to wrap that into one thing. The first one, cork taint, we're going to get into it, is really just going to happen no matter what in the world. The, but the other two can be prevented by SO2, which we'll get into. Cork is natural. It comes from a species of oak trees called Quercus suber. And the tissue that is shaved off that tree is called a lenticel. It's very porous. That is what makes a cork for wine. That porous nature of the cork allows for gas exchange, which absolutely benefits a wine, as you guys probably know. Because cork is natural and porous, it's always going to harbor fungi. Doesn't that, it's not dangerous to us, but it's always going to be in there. And sometimes during the sanitation process of corks, these fungi can produce what are called taint compounds. The most significant of these, and the one that messes, us, messes with us the most, is a compound called 246-trichloronesol, otherwise known as TCA, otherwise known as cork taint. And from what I've read, there's a theory that these compounds get their way into that little airspace between wine and a cork, and every bottle there's that little pocket of air, and then drops into the wine. And this is, this is crazy. It takes only three to four nanograms per liter to mess an entire bottle of wine up. What happens is this taint compound suppresses fruit, not allowing our brains to recognize any fruit characteristics in a wine. You would sip it, you would get all the textural stuff, that's still there. But when you swallow the wine, there's no finish. And Jedi wine master Jancis Robinson has this crazy data saying that at any given time, 3 to 5% of the world's wines are corked. I mean, that's crazy. But here's the capper. What this taint compound does, it literally renders the wine pretty much undrinkable because there's nothing there for your nose to enjoy. But, the, but it depends on your ability as a human <laughs> to detect these things. And everybody is different. Everybody has what's called a detection threshold. And everyone has a different detection threshold because we're all humans, we're all different and all that. And in its most subtle form, it's very hard to detect TCA because you're still getting some fruit, but there's something wrong. There's something like wrong, but it takes a minute to figure that out. You have to have had the wine the right way and then have the wine not the right way to detect what the, what that, that cork taint. That's why it's so crazy. And it's most extreme. I mean, you're still like, look, there's something, there's nothing going on in this wine. And it's just obvious something's wrong. And now often you'll smell this sort of moldy newspaper or like wet dog hair and stuff. But really what it is, is there's no fruit. Even in our industry, when we're tasting wine, it's always weird. Who's going to be the first person to say this wine is court? <laughs> it really is. I'm serious. It is crazy. Like, no, who wants, no one wants to be the first one to say it's court in case it's not court. It's just, that's how subtle this stuff can be. But the second you experience it, you'll just know it from then on pretty much. And as unfortunate as a quart bottle is, when I do wine classes IRL, I actually enjoy when a wine is corked so I can put the, you know, the non-corked wine next to it so everyone can get a sense of what corked wine is and just get it over with, you know what I mean? And real talk, this is one of the reasons why the screw cap 
is a thing. Now, when we talk about opening a bottle of wine and we talk about decanting and wine in the glass, we always talk about how we want to encourage oxygen into the wine so that the wine opens up and gives us all the things we want or the wine wants to give us, right? Well, during the winemaking process, too much oxygen can be a bad thing. I know it sounds crazy. As we talked about in the last episode, oxygen doesn't only give life to those browning agents, but it also gives life and feeds certain bacterias and spoilage yeasts that can produce other stuff to mess with the wine. During the last part of fermentation, when alcohol is being formed, part of that formation is a reduction of a certain compound called acetaldehyde. So acetaldehyde reduces into ethanol. I know this is a bit sciencey, but bear with me. It'll all make sense, I promise. So what ethanol does is it kills a lot of bacteria once it's produced, but there is a bacteria called acetobacter. It's an acid bacteria that can hang out through this entire process. And if too much oxygen is exposed to the wine, it can interact with acetobacter. And what that'll do is reverse the formation that just happened. It will convert ethanol back into acetaldehyde, which happens to be a main compound in vinegar. So you're basically turning wine into vinegar. And what that does is create a sour sensation. So you'll, you'll be drinking a wine and it won't smell right. It'll smell a little vinegary. If that ever happens, you know a wine has been oxidized. And of course, as we know from the previous episode, a way to prevent this from happening is to add a little bit of SO2 to kind of kill those browning agents, render them impotent, so this doesn't happen. There is a species in the yeast genera named Britannomyces. This is not the Saccharomyces cerevisiae we're familiar with, which converts sugar into ethanol and carbon dioxide to make wine. This is a different kind of yeast. Of the five or so species of this particular yeast is one called Britannomyces bruxellinesis, which was named after the Seine Valley, just outside of Brussels in Belgium. And it is a very, very important and essential yeast strain or species for Lambic beers and the Goes beers that are so famous in that part of the country. And for beer, it actually is beneficial. But this yeast is also found throughout the wine world. And in the wine world, it's not beneficial. The, the wine world considers the Britannomyces yeast a spoilage yeast. Okay, bear with me here because this is, this is really awesome to understand. In a normal winemaking situation, Saccharomyces cerevisiae eats the sugar, converts it to alcohol and carbon dioxide. This is fermentation. Wine is being made. And as we talked about in the first season, as the alcohol gets to a certain point, It renders the yeast impotent, the yeast die, and then we have new wine. And then the process continues because now what we have here is wine with residual sugar and depth and all the things that are going to happen after we've gone through the entire winemaking process. The thing is, if Britannomyces is in that must, it is in that fermentation process, Once Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the beneficial yeast for wine, is rendered impotent and dies, Britannomyces is still around. So the winemaker knows that when the yeast dies, that's the residual sugar, that's the depth, that's that's the wine they want. But the Britannomyces goes in and starts eating the residual sugar 
and converting it. And what's crazy is Britannomyces is anaerobic, anaerobic. It doesn't matter if there is oxygen or if there's no oxygen, it's gonna do its thing. So if it's there, it's doing work. And instead of ethanol and carbon dioxide, what Britannomyces produces are two compounds that can affect the aroma of a wine. I mean, they produce a lot of compounds, but two that are really significant. It produces something called 4-ethylphenol, or 4-EP, and 4-ethylguayacol, or 4-EG. Again, it's science-y, but bear with me. This makes sense. The 4-EP compound will introduce to the wine an animal or medicinal smell. Some people say sweaty saddle. Not very attractive. And actually, this is the compound that diagnostic laboratories use to prove that a wine has been infected with Brett. The other compound, 4-EG, that can have some... That, this, is the, this is the smokiness. This actually, this compound brings some smokiness, some spiciness. Some people say it smells like cloves. But it definitely brings like a, a dark mocha spiciness to a wine. Now, some people believe that in small amounts, and I've, I've smelled this, in small amounts, that smoking is kind of, it, it, it adds a little bit to the complexity of a wine, even though it's a little bit out of place. But if it gets out of hand, it's all you smell. And if the population is really large and it's getting a lot of oxygen, it forms compounds called tetrahydropyridines. And if you've heard at all about wine smelling mousy, this is the compound. When this compound gets into a wine, it mouses out and you can't smell anything but mouse and mocha and smoke and maybe some medicinal stuff. Because not only has the Britannomyces eaten a lot of the residual sugar, but it's also produced these other things that mess with the wine's complexity anyway. I know this is kind of crazy sciencey stuff and it's kind of intense, but it gets even more so when there's, if, if a barrel is infected with a Britannomyces population, it's there forever. You actually have to get rid of your barrel. So these are things that can be prevented by SO2 and by cleanliness. So the, the big hygiene things, hygiene things, a big deal with wine. The wineries are clean and they try to make sure that these kinds of yeasts don't get in to kind of spoil the wine. Now, there are some winemakers out there that actually I don't know if they encourage oxygen, Britannomyces, and these kinds of things in, into the wine, but they, they believe that these things can add complexity to a wine. So you, you're, gonna, you're probably going to encounter some of these wines at some point. One thing to know about these, these wine faults or these, these spoilage yeast or these oxidation, these things that can happen to wine that are preventable but sometimes allowed, when these things happen, it doesn't matter what the wine is made, what grapes the wine are made from, the wine is made from. It doesn't matter where it's made. It's always going to smell the same. It's going to smell like ethylphenol, or it's going to smell like ethylguayacol, or tetrahydropyridine. So it's going to smell medicinal, mousy, and smoky. And all those things are going to mask what the wine initially was going to be. And when you're smelling these wines, deep down in there, there's like I'm under all the weird smoke and other all under all this stuff, there's a wine down in there. But unfortunately, you'll never really get to it because these compounds, when they overwhelm a wine, they overwhelm your thresh your, your threshold of perception, and you tend to really just smell all those things, and you never really get to the real fruit of the wine because a lot of the fruit is gone. 
and there's a lot of compounds overriding what was left. So there you have it, guys. These are some things that you will encounter IRL out there enjoying wine, and here's a way now that you can kind of catch them. There are certain kinds of wines that it, all this, like the, the, some of this stuff is done intentionally, not the cork taint, but the other stuff is done intentionally. So you'll come across those wines and you can decide whether they're your jam or not. But now you know and you have all the information you need to know to make your own decisions. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with Lamarca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at barrelroom.com. Cheers and all the best.